All right, welcome everyone. This is uh, our first podcast at the Flyover Labs. And so we'll see how this goes. It should be interesting, that's for sure. Uh, but I'd like to thank uh, Ryan Riss for coming on the show today. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. R- Ryan's a good guy, and uh, he's the director of uh, innovation at American Family. So he, he's in the middle of a lot of different technology trends. So I thought he'd be a, an interesting first guest to have on, on our show. Uh, insurance right now, like a lot of industries, are being changed a lot by uh, technology. But insurance especially has several major, major trends with the big data, Internet of Things, and Lion Drones, which isn't quite major. But So Ryan's going to talk about his background and more kind of where he sees the future of insurance going. Uh, so, mate, let's just get right into it. Uh, Ryan, I'm curious, how, how do you become the director of innovation? Are you just bubbling with lots of ideas, or do you have like a good framework for innovation? Or that's a that's a that's a good question. Um, I think you're just intellectually curious, a wandering soul, and I sort of happened to work my way uh, into this job. So no, I, I started um, serious in all seriousness, um, not really knowing what I wanted to do. Jumped from pre med to pre vet to comp side, uh, English lit, um, and ended up saying, look, I'm just going to go, you know, finish my undergrad, go work for a while, and started with Lucent Technologies, and looking back on it, really, really interesting spot to land. So this was when, uh, in 2000, when the, um, the sort of dot-com bubble was being burst, and Lucent, like a lot of, of the infrastructure companies, were supplying the technology and often financing it. So to build out at the time, which was 3G, um, and so I sort of saw that that crash happen from the inside. And then uh, my wife is from here, so we moved up. And I've been with American Family for probably 14 years. And all of those jobs were kind of around technology and consumer behavior, so either marketing or sales. And either it was sales automation or it was customer self, self-service online which sort of morphed into some strategy roles. And then our, in 2008, we really, um, another interesting project was this Teen Safe Driver program where we put um, technology mm-hmm. in teenagers' cars and it actually would record them and send a video loop back to their parents. But the ingenious thing was it only recorded them if they, um, if they, they kicked off the accelerometer. So if mm-hmm. they took a sharp turn or they slammed on the brakes, it would record a little loop. Um, so we did that, and it was sort of the first time I saw how the insurance industry could go from being reactive to being proactive, how we could play a, play a role in solving the problem instead of sitting back and waiting for bad things to happen and paying claims. Um, so, so that sort of, inched in, sort of inched our way into that, and then eventually uh, worked in the data science lab, and I've been in innovation about a year now. So I think it is about intellectual curiosity. I think it's about... Um, you know, you got to be interested in technology because technology is driving all of the changes that we're seeing. The changes in consumer behavior are driven by technology, which makes making it easier for businesses to get started. It's making it um, easier for companies to add value, real value to consumers. You know, 30 years ago, you didn't need an innovation department, and you didn't have the, the changes that we have today. And if you were an incumbent, you were an incumbent, and you had power. And you were selling products to people, not what they, you didn't ask them what they wanted, you designed a product and then tried to sell it. And if you had distribution, you had power, because that was, that was how you went to market, right? So I think all the changes we see today started with information, 
and moved into changing distribution and now they're moving into changing the products and services themselves and it's driven by in my opinion this exponential growth in technology interesting so when you put that technology in the cars did you see an immediate change in the behavior of the driver team drivers or did yeah so that that's yeah so the programmers so yeah tell you a lot about that and about other things too. So we were a small scrappy team of, of three of us okay. traveling around the country trying to convince our agents that they should care about this because it's going to uh, engender great feelings for their customer base if they proactively save teens, teens' lives. And that wasn't hard, but they've got a lot to do. So you had to convince them to carve day out of their a time out of their day to do this. You had to convince the parents that there were no strings attached. Like, no, this is really free. Um, it's easy to install. We'll actually help you get it installed. And then the hardest was convincing the teens, which we originally thought that, I remember talking to our marketing department and it's like, oh, how do we market to uh, you know teens? And we realized, yeah, we're not marketing to teens. You're marketing to the parents mm -hmm. of teens. Um, and so teens, you just got them more comfortable with, with gamifying the system. You know, look, you're, we're not here to spy on you. And in fact, if you do nothing wrong in the car, if you drive safely, the camera will never record you. And that was the big switch for the team. So there was an angle for them not to be monitored. We're not here to just check, check out what you're doing. There's a game to play, and, and it gamified safe driving for the team. So if you're safe, your parents will never see what's going on in your car. You, and the, the kids actually learned that. So they quickly learned their parents were getting videos, and some of the videos were crazy stuff going on in the car. You can only imagine what you know, 16 year olds. Thank yeah. God they didn't have this when I was 16. So. The parents would see this footage, and the kids would not have their seatbelt on. There would be 18 kids in a you know a four-passenger car. Um, they'd be swerving all over. They'd be not having their eyes on the road. And so parents would quickly jump in and say, "Look, this is our car. We're paying for insurance. We care about you and your life. If if we see one more video like this, we're taking the car away." And for for a 16-year-old, that car represents yeah. freedom. It represents. Um, so much of like the American dream is like being out and being able to drive a car when you're young and on the roads with your friends and um, getting from point A to point B and not having your parents around you. So strong emotional connections for the teen. Um, the parents had control over the situation and there was a system for the team to work, work it so that they, it was to their advantage, right? And the way to work it was to take corners slower and to not follow mm -hmm. so closely. If you follow a car really closely and that car stops, you then have to slam on the brakes. So teens learn to not follow as closely, take corners slower, accelerate more gradually. Well, it turns out all those things are things that <laughs> keep you in snowy weather. If you don't take the, the corner so hard, you're not gonna slide and crash. If you're not following so closely, you won't rear end. So it gamified some of those behaviors that lead to safer driving. So, so you, yes, you see really quickly, we saw in a matter of weeks, um, driving dramatically dropped down into a safer level and over the long term we saw those behaviors sort of stick. We had uh, University of Iowa came in and did an independent third-party review of the data and, and the results. Um, we, we've done, did that, we started in 2008 so we have enough data now to show that it uh, significantly dropped risky driving and mm -hmm. if you don't, a lot of people probably don't know the stats on risky driving but it, it looks like a massive exponential right-tailed curve mm -hmm. if you look at driving by age. So 16-year-olds are nine times more likely to get into a crash than a 50-year-old. And then it drops way down. And then when you get to be 80 years old, it spikes back up a little bit. But 16, and, and why is that? Why is it, it's, you know, accidents, 
are off the charts for 16 year olds it's because of lack of experience it's because they you know we learn these things and that's where it gets an interesting with autonomous cars um, how is that going to work if we lose our experience driving um, you know what about semi-autonomous where half the time we put the Tesla on autopilot and we're reading a book and half the time now we're driving but so yeah the teen safe driver program was um, really interesting you had a, a, the incentives were well aligned unfortunately the technology was really expensive it was a thousand bucks or 800 bucks per car Wow. and we knew that with Moore's law you know cost was going to come yeah. down and now today you know eight years later seven years later that technology is essentially free because now there are apps you can install on your phone and you can put your phone up yeah. on a on a you know mount your phone in your car and it does the exact same thing did it the change in behavior has that affected the the actuarial models at all in American Family yet? Or that, that's it, a or whole separate yeah. topic in yeah. itself. Because I think <laughs> when I think about actuarial models and yeah. actuarial science, I, I think about data science and big data. And before they were sexy, and it was called data scientists, they were called actuaries, and it was actuary <laughs> science. Right. And it it required a lot of data. You know, it required. Um, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of driving years or, or um, the experience was you needed a lot of experience you needed the, 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 the attributes you used were you know a handful of attributes and that's how the models were built and I think today there's new statistical methods that can that you can use with a smaller sample size to get mm -hmm. similar results there's now an explosion of different data sources that can be looked at um, there's machine learning you don't have to set your variables up in SPSS and run a multivariate regression or whatever you used to do. Um, there's new ways of doing things today. So I think that's a whole different shift is, is what's happening to the, the guts of insurance um, as actuary science and data science are kind of, the lines are blurring, right? And so I think that, um, that did it change the models? I think the traditional actuaries wanted more data. They wanted more driving yeah. years, and I think, you know, us on the business side, we were more convinced that this had value, um, because the, the other thing we were seeing is this spike in satisfaction from the families that enrolled in this. So, mm -hmm. we saw parents. Um, uh, Seventy-five percent of the people said they were uh, extremely likely to recommend somebody else, or they were their satisfaction jumped mm -hmm. up. They're more likely to recommend. They were more likely to stay with the American family. We had anecdotes where we would talk to parents and they were in tears saying, this program saved my child's life. They were an awful driver, extremely risky. We put this in place, it saved their life. An insurance company saving somebody's life, like that's unheard of. Yeah. And, and, and people, people hate insurance. They, they think we're out there to, <laughs> to screw them, right? They think that our job is to take in as much money and pay out as little as possible. And we can talk about how insurance, the whole model is screwed up. But that's not the truth. Like the truth is, we don't make a whole lot of money on insurance. That's a low-margin, capital-intensive business. And the fact we could actually delight a customer like that um, sort of blew our minds. And I think it was an evolution towards where we are today with connected home and how we're thinking about the Internet of Things. As uh, let's switch the model. Let's flip the model for being reactive to proactive. And that's what I want to get into later. But let's get into that now, because uh, when we talked before. You, talked about how insurance will become a little more seamless in uh, people's lives and that value aspect that insurance companies will provide more value to customers on a daily basis and that's a perfect example of saving somebody's life or you know that's what the parents said which is impressive 
can you describe a little bit more of the vision? And I think it's directly connected to the Internet of Things, it sounds like. Yeah, I think the whole insurance model, and if you look at how insurance started back in, uh, in London and at Lloyd's or at the, you know, the coffee shop where uh, they were insuring uh, maritime vessels to you know, go to the New World, and um, the idea of risk transfer, um, it's really, really important at the macro level. Um, who, how many people would be able to own a home without home insurance? that assures the bank that their 80% loan to value um, is going to get paid back, right? You know, so think about the dream of American home ownership and how insurance is absolutely vital to that happening. Um, think about the jobs that are created just in the, the construction industry and the realty um, uh, business. And so it's at a macro level, insurance frees up capital so we don't have to self-insure ourselves. So we can actually own a home. So we can buy things like an Apple computer and an iPod and, and fun gadgets. We don't have to self-insure and hoard money, right? We can freeze up capital markets, provides, provides uh, capital for those markets. Um, and it's this, this oil that sort of greases the Western economic engine. And if you look at a lot of countries where they don't have a sophisticated insurance, some of these growth markets like China, like, you know, you can go to a Caribbean island and see how, how it takes 30 years to build a home because people have to, they can't get a loan. There is no insurance. Um, so at the macro level, it's really important. At the micro level, you talk to consumers and they hate it. And you think about why they hate it. It's well, it's first of all, first of all, I pay in every year to this thing that I hope I never have to use. Because if we use it, people you know, think the rates are gonna go up. How many products are like that? How many products do you pay a significant amount, a thousand or two thousand or three thousand bucks in a year? and you get nothing back year after year after year. 90% uh, of our customers will never file a claim. So 90% of our customers will never use that product in any given year. Wow. Yet they pay in a lot of money. And so then, you know, they see their rates go up and they say, well, my rates keep going up. I haven't had a claim. Um, well, yeah, your rates go up. So does the price of bread, the price of gas. Um, but they don't, you know, it's different. They're, they're using gasoline, they're, they're eating bread, they're seeing it day in and day out. So we're, we call it a low engagement category, which just basically means we're not adding a lot of value day in and day out. Now, when somebody has a claim and their house gets burnt to the ground, somebody's injured, um, a car accident, you know, that's where we're able to step in and do our job and what we call restore people's lives and get them back to where they need to be. And that's a really tough job to be in. Um, you're at you're seeing people at their absolute lowest moments, and you're trying to bring them through. And it's, it could be very gratifying if you're. You know, we've got a lot of great stories where we help people get them back um, where they need to go. But fundamentally, that business model stinks. Like we're <laughs> engaging with people when they're at their worst. We're not any value day in and day out. Um, secondly, the the product itself is really complicated. Can you tell me what your insurance covers and what it doesn't cover? <laughs> no idea. <laughs> I Maybe a little bit, but <laughs> 99 people out of 100 probably don't know that. And I think the insurance industry, first of all, has, has excluded certain things because we have to make some money. Again, it's a, it's you know a low margin, capital intensive business, so we can't cover floods. You know, we can't cover certain things, or or we would just be we wouldn't exist, right? So there's all these exclusions, and then we add in all these you know, different coverage options. Like, do you want identity theft coverage? Or do, would you like 
these tweaks and add-ons. And so that the product, this, which is essentially a contract, is incredibly complex. And you don't know how it got priced. It uses your credit score, which you don't really know how your credit score is impacted and changed, right? So it's not transparent. It's really complex. We don't add value day in and day out. So at, at the micro level, it, it's, it's bad and it's, and it's ripe for disruption. So you think about how we could do things better. Um, you know, John Hancock has a great program now uh, called Vitality. That, that uh, John Hancock's a life insurance company, and they um, they just realized they woke up one day and realized, wait a minute, we actually make more money if our customers live long, happy, healthy lives. There's an mm -hmm. incentive. Um, why don't we help them live long, happy, <laughs> health, healthy lives? We know all the behavioral traits that lead to the diseases that lead to over half of the early deaths. Why don't we help people and send people for those, those behaviors to do the things that are going to avoid the diseases and that are going to avoid the untimely death? So that's exactly what the program does. So as you make healthy life choice decisions, you get rewards and you get offered all these things. And it sort of gamifies, just like the wearable industry is doing. You know, it's, it's tapping into your behaviors and, and giving you information about how you can live better, healthier lives. Okay. So that's a great example of how I think insurance can flip this and be more proactive. And, and IoT is, is a big part of that. It, it enables that to happen, right? Definitely. So if, uh, I'm curious with Jan, John Hancock, is that more of a, a wellness initiative? Or are they working directly with healthcare uh, people, you know, like hospitals and physicians? Or? Um, well, on the life insurance side, it's, it's, it's more about um, working with the consumer. But the health, in, health industry has yeah, been doing yeah. this for a while. So actually the health insurance industry is probably uh, leading the way on the charge because there's a direct benefit um, to not smoking, to exercising, and to annually what you're going to be paying in, what they're going to be paying out for health insurance, right? How many times you're going to go to the, the doctor. So the health, the economic drivers are tangible and they're more apparent on the health insurance side. So I think they've been leading the charge. I think life insurance is starting to see some of those same things. I think the PNC industry and even the commercial industry are picking up on different angles of that. So the home, for example, um, how can we prevent water damage? Um, so we've been deploying uh, Wally units and smart things units and really inexpensive water detection devices that alert you to a leak in a part of your home you probably never go look until it was too late mm -hmm. and you had flood damage and now you had to replace walls and drywall and carpet, right? So um, same sort of, I think the same sort of model applies to other, other industries. Interesting. And, and from the innovation standpoint, how do you figure out what makes sense from an investment standpoint, the ROI, like you mentioned the monitoring for flooding, uh, but if you uh, equip every home with that, it probably wouldn't make sense because you only get so much money every year, you know, six, six, $700 per year for home insurance. So how do you uh, evaluate what, what makes sense? Or maybe over time, costs come down, like with the driving? Or Yeah, I think the return on investment um, the economic drivers of all of this, how do you make money at it? Um, the people running the day-to-day -day business, that's what they immediately jump to. And I think our job as innovators, as um, we see ourselves as sort of the tip of the spear of change, um, we have to identify the possibilities and I think we have to hone in and provide clarity for the business. So we, we try to extract uncertainty and 
provide the main business an idea concept that's that's more fleshed out, more um, more certain. And so, with IoT, there's lots of ways that IoT could make money. One, it could just delight people, make mm -hmm. them super happy, and make them all want to do business with an American family and never leave American family. Yeah. You know, an increase in retention like that um, for a business like insurance is worth a lot of money. Um, you know, this is something like a utility where you pay in, you pay in every year, right? So switching costs, um, acquisition costs for people that are high for insurance companies. Um, the market is essentially saturated. Everybody has insurance from somebody. We're stealing from one another. So it could just be that we delight people. Um, and, and so when we run our tests, we look at how does this program or that program impact satisfaction, retention, um, likely to refer, uh, refer other customers, brand perception, things like that. Uh, secondly, it could be that um, we just lower our, our loss pool. So by deploying the device, that it offsets the cost by some amount that we would normally pay out. So by providing you a $30, $50 water detection device, we uh, pay out fewer claims that are less severe. And so it could be that that's part of the economic driver. Um, and the third could be that we just attract people who are better risks, um, people that care about this stuff, that engage with connected home technology, might just be less likely to have an accident in the first place. Um, or we could learn things about behavior, such as people that are home more often as opposed to away. Maybe people that travel have a better risk profile because they're not using their home as much. Maybe they should get some sort of advantage. All, all that stuff is yet to be determined. And I think what our job is to, is to test all those and to drive out the uncertainty. So, so, so we're not there yet. The other thing that I would advise all of the people that are you know, looking at this, um, you have to look at this as R&D. So I would pose the question back is, what's the value of R&D? Um, Intel spends 20% of their revenue, somewhere around there on R&D. Microsoft, 13%. Um, Nike, 7%. So what is the value of R&D? Um, and I think companies that do R&D successfully have proven over the long term, not the short term, the long term, that it drives new products, it drives new services, um, it puts them at the edge, they're able to command a premium, um, and there is tremendous economic value. In fact, in fact the Design Institute has a metric, or a, uh, I forget what it's called, but it's a, a chart that maps the most innovative companies against everyone else, and it tracks the, the value in the S&P or the NASDAQ um, comparatively, and there's a 220-some percent difference in value of the most innovative companies that are investing in R&D and the companies mm -hmm. that aren't. So I think you have to believe that. You have to believe that investing in the future, investing in R&D does have economic value. And then the specifics of where the money's going to be made, I think it's up to companies or groups like us to provide some more certainty around that. I think the trap is to say, we don't know. We don't know where, where the money is going to be made, so therefore we're not going to do anything. Yeah. Well, that's why it's wise to almost set up a, a separate innovation team within a larger corporation so you can, you, can, you can be curious and try to answer questions that might not be relevant right now for a business unit, but it will in the future. So, so I'm curious, when you, so how do you come up with ideas, let's say with detecting flood, flooding within a home, and so how do you come up with ideas, and then how do you take it through the process and then what do you actually deliver to, let's say, let's say the business unit? You know, what are the kind of your deliverables? And maybe there's not a formal process, but I guess that's another question. <laughs> yeah, you know, 
for, in terms of a formal process, you know, we are still learning. Um, and I think the, the heart and soul of any good innovation team is the ability to be agile, the ability, the ability to understand you're not going to, there's no formula that you can write out that's always going to work every time. Uh, that can that can be a process that's put in place and never changed. I, I, we have to we have to know that that being in innovation groups mean, means that um, we're agile. We're open to looking at new ways of doing things. Um, just look at so lean startup is one process we use, which is an evolution of um, design thinking and customer development, and agile engineering. All these things have sort of come together and improved upon each other, and so. And then, you know, Eric Ries sort of coined the term Lean Startup. And even since then, there's been groups that have taken Eric Ries's work and evolved it even further. And so um, Lean Startup is one process we use where you, you, you employ deep customer empathy by getting out there, talking to customers, honing in on the problem, um, and ultimately trying to come up with solutions and testing those in a really small, controllable way that um, extracts value extracts uncertainty, that determines where the value is, that determines the business model and economic value at a, at a quicker pace with less resources. Typically, in companies have a hypothesis, they go invest, they do the PetSmart um, or Pets.com sort of yeah. approach, right? Invest millions and millions of dollars in building something and then hoping customers come. So one process we use is something like Lean Startup, design thinking, but we don't have it figured out. I mean, we, we are continually looking at how we do that better. Um, how we identify ideas is by keeping our eyes and ears open. So sometimes it comes from our uh, startup community. So we have a venture capital team that is out there in San Francisco and London and different parts of the world meeting with entrepreneurs. Um, and so we saw sort of IoT as this trend bubbling up from what they were seeing. Um, then also we hear market pundits like BCG and KPMG and different people sort of um, theorizing about certain things, or it's oftentimes it's really, really smart people that we're connected with, or um, you know, places like Stanford, we're part of the Stanford Data Science um, in Initiative, which gives us access to really smart people who are thinking about things in a different way. Um, but it's usually a combination of a lot of different um, market-leading trends and thoughts out there about where the world might go, what the possibilities are, and, and we'll even start to see some market traction with the company here and there. Um, and then we sort of say there's enough here, we should explore it. And then we go explore it um, and start to bring it into some sort of process that extracts uncertainty, um, determines if there's, if there's a product or service there. And then the last part of that is how do we transition that back to the company that's probably the most difficult part of our job. And it, there, it's part art, very little science. Um, you know, is there an appetite for it? Do we have people who are willing to take a risk and, and talk to us and work with us? Um, you know, have we have we brought them in early? If we brought bring them in early, we're usually more successful. Does it line up with where they see the business going? Can we resource it for them? Offload. You know, they have a busy job running the business. So, how, how easy can we make it for them to plug in? Um, variety of decisions and. and and, and issues that come up there that, that primarily revolve around um, human psychology and change, change management, right? So 
Yeah, so 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 start to finish, it's it's difficult. It's fun on the front end. It gets really difficult and hard on the back end. Um, but I think the whole thing has been enjoyable for me because it's been a really complex, hard problem. And how do you get a big company to change? Yeah. Well, your experience with uh, the cars is probably perfect for this too. I mean, just going around talking to customers and the agents, and that's probably what you do a lot with all these ideas. That was probably a great experience. And we're at, we wanted to try to end by 30 minutes. Well. We're at 28, but uh, a couple more things. That one thing I wanted to just uh, in general, how, how many people are on the innovation team? We've got around 10 to 15. We okay. sort of flex depending upon what skill sets we need at any given time, but it's a relatively small team. Okay. And what are your uh, major kind of major initiatives from overall, if you have a major initiative? Yeah, I think this idea, you know, driving a lot of it is this idea of differentiating insurance. Um, insurance is not differentiated today. I thought, was at a conference and a guy had a, uh, an insurance conference and a guy showed a picture of a head of lettuce. And he said, we're selling lettuce. Um, there's not a lot of difference. You know, when you shop for lettuce, is it fresh? Maybe it's organic, not organic. That's it. Um, insurance today is commoditized and I think American Family is trying to figure out how can we do what Starbucks did to coffee? How can we... Um, you know, how can we do what um, other people have done in other industries of water? If you can differentiate water, I believe you can differentiate insurance. So, Good point. So that's, Good point. that's what's driving a lot of it. And I think that leads you into things like IoT, um, both in the home and the car. Um, I think that lead, leads you into adjacent markets. You know, how can we, you know, what's the difference between insurance and security and protection, mm -hmm. ultimately from the consumer mm -hmm. standpoint? Um, it, it's, it's raising a lot of really interesting questions that I think are rethinking um, where we play. The, the, the lines between industries, I think, are blurry. That's interesting. Well, that's one thing I want to get into, but we're running out of time. Because my other question was, you know, life insurance, health insurance, home insurance. I feel like those lines could blur over a little bit of time as well. Um, but I didn't think about adjacent markets. Yeah, like that's a really easy one. Like, why do you have a liability on your auto policy, liability on your home policy? You don't think about the world like that. You think about you. Right, Dave, and your stuff, right? So that's a really easy way, a quick way. I think insurance could mm. break down silos, and I think there's already people working on this. There's, in fact, in Europe, there's uh, some interesting thing happening where there's just a product, one product for you and all your stuff, right? Um, that covers you. You're covered. It, it covers uh, home auto. Does it get into life or health? Yeah, sure. Those, really, sure. I mean, I think why? Why not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Well, that's exciting. Transparency for the consumer, simplification for the consumer, adding more value to their lives. Those are all things that you're seeing in the broader market. Think of Uber and think how easy it is to go from point A to point B now. Um, it should be easier to, first of all, transact with insurance companies, and second, you should be getting more, more out of that relationship. Do you think there'll be more mergers in the insurance industry because of that? People, or, or maybe you'll just dive into adjacent markets? I, I don't I don't see a lot of value created by taking one big insurance company and merging it with another. Mm -hmm. I think the value is going to be taking an insurance company and adding on some capabilities that maybe it didn't have before. To me, that's where it's where it gets interesting. I think um, right now you're seeing what's the difference between ADT and American Family Insurance. You're seeing um, you're seeing these sort of adjacent industries kind of battling for the same thing: peace mm -hmm. of mind at the home, right? It's that's what we're all what we're all trying to be that your trusted source for peace of mind, as it comes as it related to your home, and so we're deploying things like Ring, which are home security solutions, 
We're providing those to our customers. ADT provides a similar product or service um, to keep you safe at, at home. So I, you know, I, don't, I don't see a lot of value created in giant um, insurance company mergers. I do think you know, there's over 5,200 insurance companies in the U.S. on the P&C side. I think what you'll see is um, not all of those companies can compete with the pace of change. Not those, a lot of those companies can't invest in drones. They don't have the resources. They don't have innovation teams. So I think, I think you're going to see the people that pay attention and that invest are going to come out on top. So I, I, I see a lot of fallout happening on the lower end of the scale. Um, you know, can a small regional mutual company make it in the future? Can they add the same value that, that folks that are investing in this stuff can? Um, Interesting. No, that makes a lot of sense. And last question, to make that vision reality, you know, more of a seamless insurance experience, let's call it, what, what are some of the biggest hurdles or what type of technology you think is needed in order to make that happen? Or is it more business model oriented? I think it's already happening. Okay. There are peer-to-peer insurance companies like Lemonade. There are companies like Policy Genius. Um, Oscar and Zenefits that are making the engagement fun. And so through through filling out some uh, trivia questions about things, I can offer you a quote for insurance. I no longer have to take you through this long, arduous process of filling out an application. There's things like blockchain that are going to make, um, you, you know, you think about every dollar of premium that goes in, 30 to 40 cents of that is used to, for expenses for um, people on the front end of that process, the back end, um, the IT infrastructure. So things like blockchain can make make that transaction a lot a lot cheaper. Things like smart contracts, right? I can just use weather technology to confirm that you had an issue uh, that qualified under your contract, and money shows up in your account the next day. So I think you're going to see transactions can happen faster. You're going to see expenses get reduced. You're going to see um, security improve. So why do why do what insurance company have to store all of your personal data? That theoretically could be part of um, the blockchain technology, right? That that you then permission various people to use. So I think um, I think there's a lot of technologies that are that are out there. I think what, what's going to make it happen? I think it's already happening. Um, I think that the insurance companies, the big and this is to any industry, the big behemoths, the incumbents that are willing to change, to pay attention to what's happening, that focus relentlessly on the customer and the problem that they're having, I think they're going to um, survive and end up on top. Interesting. All right. Well, as I promised, Ryan was, was pretty great. So that was, that was brilliant. And I appreciate your time, Ryan. And uh, very interesting to hear more about the insurance industry. I think I could talk about this for a couple hours, but I don't I think know. people are sick of it. Yeah. yeah. Right, let's, that's, uh, that's a lot of us. So thank okay. you. And uh, yeah. Thanks, Dave. Until next time.